0: thank you for this evening, thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you and to look at your word, we thank you for those who are coming out and ask you to bless this time in a great, special way, let your Holy Spirit guide and lead, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 12, we're continuing the story of Rehoboam, Rehoboam came to power, uh, he rejected good counsel, 10 of the t- 12 tribes rebelled against him. And he was getting ready to go to war against them, and God reprimanded him. And he established his kingdom. And we found out that he had—he only had 88 children. Only. Yeah, only 88 children, (laughs) and uh, 78 wives (laughs) and concubines. Uh, Who knows? (laughs) 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 I wondered the same thing about Solomon, who had more more than that. So, uh, so. All right, so chapter 12, verse 1. And it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And it came to pass that in the fifth year of, the, of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and people without number that came with him out of Egypt the Lubans, the Shukims, and the Ethiopians. And he took the fenced cities that were that pertained to Judah and came to Jerusalem. Then came Shemaiah, the prophet, to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, You have forsaken me, therefore I have left you in the hand of Shishak. And we're going to stop there because we've got quite a bit just going on in here, the accusation that goes on. So we have here Rehoboam takes the two tribes that are left and he establishes his kingdom. And so now we're moving into five years into his kingdom. And we've read before for the first three years, he obeyed God. So he established, he followed after David and Solomon. For five years, for three years, and then it says that he forsook the law of the Lord and Israel with him. And you know we wonder about this because it didn't take too long after that. Two more years later, and he's he's under heavy judgment from God. So he must have really gone overboard in his forsaking of God. And this idea that he just left God. And this is going to be the pattern we will see through all the kings of Israel and of, of Judah. They've, most of them don't go and serve God for their entire lifetime. And you know, this is one of the things that bothers me most when I see people that are on fire for God. They're on fire for God and then you watch them and all of a sudden they completely fall, fall away. They forsake God. And it is really easy to happen, and I've seen it happen so often. People get blessed by God, and they start getting stuff. And then that stuff starts to rule over their life, and they have to spend all their time with their stuff and end up forgetting God. And they don't finish well. And we see this over and over. Uh, Saul did not finish well. Solomon actually finished well, but he had a whole chunk of his life where he wasn't doing well. David had a period of time where he didn't do, do well, and he came back. But we see over and over a falling away if people lose focus on God. Biggest thing that they do is they take their eyes off God and put it on, their, on, the, on the blessings, on the, that they on the things they get, and then forget that God is the one that gave them to them. Because any time, and even in our own lives, even though we may not go off the deep end, the times we're in trouble is when we take our focus off God we probably aren 't praying like we were. we probably aren't in god 's word we 're not fellowshipping with the body, and then we start realizing, hold it, my life isn 't uh, isn 't the same as what it was a year ago when I was doing, and we may not even realize what it was that we were doing when everything seemed to be going good and oftentimes, because my eyes are on God, I might actually be doing better with my when my eyes are off God, but i don 't feel like i 'm doing better because God is not giving me the peace that passes understanding at that time, whereas I might have been going through pure hell like Job was. My eyes are focused on God, and I'm looking at him, and he's giving me peace that he's in control. He wants us to focus back on him. And all of our bad, all the things that, quote, unquote, bad things that happen to us, and I'm not really willing to say anything bad because all things work together for good, but when we think something's bad, it's usually because our focus isn't on God. And he's trying to say, are you focused on me? Job had to be refocused on God, especially after his wonderful friends helped harass him into not paying attention to God, because he started out really good. You know, I'm going to, you know, God gave me, God took away, and blessed be the name of the Lord, you know. And then his friends started uh, pounding on him for weeks, days, months, whatever, whatever period it was. And all of a sudden, he started taking his eyes off and, you know, because he was just being attacked so much and he just got to the place where he couldn't, couldn't, didn't, couldn't or didn't stay focused on God. And believe me, I have seen more people turn away from God because they've been blessed by God. You know, maybe blessed by God, maybe blessed by, allowed, allowed by Satan to get the goodies. But, and they start focusing on their perceived blessings, their, their things. And then they get possessed by their things. Or the other side of the coin is they get possessed by their desire for the things that they don't have. Because you, be, you can be poor and still be very selfish and, and, and centered on stuff that you don't have. So we need to be very careful. Where is our focus? And I love this. Are, are we God-centered? Are we focused on his word in prayer, his people, and the things that I can do to serve him? Not for glory, not for anything, but just to focus on him. And this is where... Rehoboam is he is drifting away from God he's he's forsaking God you now and part of it is you remember he inherited an extremely wealthy kingdom so he's kind of spoiled in the in the on the one side and then when he first starts out he's recognizing that his gifts come from God but he's getting to the place where he doesn't recognize that these are from God and he sees the taxes coming in, and he's probably thinking, look at what a wonderful job I'm doing. Taxes are coming in. And if he did what he told the people, he's increased their taxes. So he's got more taxes coming in than 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 he had before. Less territory to have to take care of because he lost 10 tribes. And so everything looks like, look what a great job I'm doing. And he takes his focus off God, and then he abandons God. And how easy it is for us to justify what we're doing and say, well, you know, this is, this is just what I have to do. And, you know, one of the things I was listening to a kid's show, you know, yesterday, and it was talking about how a person wanted to figure out their problems without going to adults and, and people to help them figure out. How many times do we do that with God? God, I just have to figure this out. When I've got it all figured out, I'll come and, I'll come and talk to you. I'll come and follow you. I'll come and do things your way as soon as I figure out what I'm doing. And we all are, tend to do that. You know, I've, i just got to figure things out. Life is miserable. My life is hard. But once I get it all figured out, I get it straight, then I'll come to to God. I'll come and find help. And unfortunately, that's a problem. So Rehoboam turns from God. He forsakes the law. And the, all of Israel follows behind him. And this is very Important for people who are leaders, whether they're a father or or owner of a business or government or any kind of leader at all, people follow which way you're going. Not 100%, but here, Rehoboam forsakes God, and the people follow after him. And then God brings judgment. And who does he use to bring judgment? He brings Egypt. Brings Shishak of Egypt. And this is not even the number one country nation at this time. Egypt is not the number one. They're like number three in, that, and in this period of time. And the army that he comes against him is just a little tiny thing. You know, 1,200 1, chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And then I love this. It says, and people so many that they didn't even number them. Uh, now, we know that there had to have been a number. But what they're literally saying is they looked out over this army and they were covering the valley <laughs> all right, they couldn't they couldn't even count how many how many it was so all of this because of his disobedience before god and he's this huge army you know i would almost say swarm of locusts coming across his coming across and it says in verse four that they took or excuse me verse four yeah four they took the fenced cities that pertained to judah and came toward jerusalem so if you remember in the previous chapter, we read how in 11.5 in through 10, that Rehoboam had set up all of these perimeter cities to, to be fortifications in defense. Shishak came and destroyed all those cities that he had built up and conquered them. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, so Rehoboam's thinking, OK, I've got, I, I didn't count these ones, but you know, there's probably 10, 10, 10 or 15 cities listed there. They ring Jerusalem. He goes, I am very well protected. He's trusting in himself. He goes, I am protected. I've got this whole ring. of. There's all these cities, and there's nobody that can take all these cities, and we're we're well protected. And Shishak comes out, basically just sweeps through these cities and takes them, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, we have a prophet show up. Now we had the prophet Shemaiah. We don't know anything about him. I, I can find nothing about him. There's a couple mentions to him. A couple of them I'm sure are not him, because it's way later on. But we don't know much about him. And he comes and he says, "This is because you have forsaken the Lord." And then it says, "And God has forsaken you." That would be a terrible statement. You have forsaken God, so he has forsaken you. Now see how long you can last. And this is when we start really realizing how much God is doing for us when, when he tends to turn around a little bit and said, okay, you you think you can do this all on your own? Let's see how well you do on your own. And I don't want to live any day without on my own without God. Uh, I've gone through my early days when I used to play those kind of games with God, and it, uh, he proved very much that I can't stand on my own. Uh, he, he managed to set things up really well, put a lot of Shishaks in my path and said, you think you got this? Here, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna bring it, all your defenses down. And it's very interesting as we get here because all the princes of, of Judah are there with him, and Shemaiah comes and says, this is because you disobeyed God, you forsook him. And I love this because we're going to read verse 6 now. Whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants that they may know my service and, and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So Shishak king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasure of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and he took all and he carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Instead of which King Rehoboam made shields of brass and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. And when the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came out and fetched them and brought them again into the chamber, guard chamber. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. I was going to look at this. It says, the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves. And I was thinking, you know, what really does it mean to be humble. And this is something that most people don't fully comprehend, true humility. And I think it was very interesting, as I studied this, the Hebrew word for humble means to be subjected as as into a military, being captured by a military force. And you have no strength left. Oftentimes people go, well, look at me, I'm humble, I'm I'm not taking my place, but that's not really humility. This humility is that I surrender all of myself to God as if I'm captured, as if I'm his prisoner, which is good to be God's prisoner as far as I'm concerned. But I humble myself and say, God, I have nothing. I have nothing for you. Without you, I have nothing. You have totally captivated and captured me. And it's the correct attitude to have to God. Total surrender to God. And he's going to spend his whole life teaching us to be totally surrendered. And when we think we're totally surrendered, he's going to show us that we're not totally surrendered in some some area of our life and try to get us to surrender in that area. Just have to say, God, I'm going to give it to you. Everything belongs to you. I have nothing. And we've got to really understand, none of us has anything that God needs or wants other than, than us ourselves. He wants us. But we, none of us have any skills or great gifts or money or anything else that God needs. He wants us. And he wants us surrendered <laughs> and humble before him. And then he can use us. If we are totally surrendered and humble to him, then he can use us and know that we're not going to get exalted in our own thoughts. So the, these leaders humbled themselves. And basically, they saw the handwriting on the wall, obviously. You know, the prophet saying, you know, you, this is because you have rejected God. But they correctly humbled themselves before God. And God saw the true humble spirit that they had. And his answer back to them, he said, Jeshemiah, go tell them, because they've humbled themselves, I will not destroy you. I am not going to destroy Jerusalem and the kingdom. And he says, but <laughs> there's going to be a problem. There, there is going to be a consequence. And this is something we I've said over and over again. There is always consequence for our sins always God may take away the worst of our consequences but there's always going to be consequences when we are disobedient now God may mitigate some of the consequences so it's not quite as bad but he wants us to make sure that we understand that when we do something that is against him we will have a physical price to pay sometimes the an emotional price to pay, but there will be a price to pay. Now, he may come in and say it's not going to be as bad as it should be. He might even miraculously make it not bad at all. But there's always a consequence. We reap what we sow. Rehoboam's going to reap what he sows, and in verse 8 it says, Nevertheless, they shall be his servants. You will serve Shishak. So they are going from Solomon owning all of the territory that Israel is supposed to own, very wealthy, very much at peace. Rehoboam sins, and now they're going to lose all of their wealth. Shishak is going to take all their wealth from the the treasuries and make them subservient to him. What a downfall! Can you imagine what this would be like? And in fact, this isn't even. This is not even. You know, he's only five years into his kingdom, and all of a sudden, he's gone from being the number one kingdom to serving the number three kingdom. Or three kingdom, not counting them. You know, so there's two above them. So basically, he's dropped from number one to number four. At least he has fallen very, very quickly. And we've seen this in history, all through history, where some nations, you know, they're going along, and then all of a sudden, at least all of a sudden to them, they will be take, taken and toppled. And this is where I think we are with America. If we do not repent, we're going to be toppled and be not number one anymore, and not number two, not number three. We will be like Israel dropping from number one down to number four. We will be like Rome falling when the, when the uh, invaders came in and, and crashing and falling down. We'll be like uh, uh, Greek, the Greek empire that totally was destroyed you know, virtually overnight for all practical purposes. You know, over and over again, we see these nations, when that judgment falls, it seems to come quickly. You know, and we can even look at when the flood of Noah came. We're told that people were feasting and drinking and marrying and living life in spite of the warnings that, that Noah had been giving them for 120 years of building the boat and preaching at them, that God's judgment is coming. And then all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't sudden because they had plenty of warning, but all of a sudden, from their perspective, they're dead. This is what's happening here to Rehoboam. All of a sudden, things are going against him. And I to almost believe that this was not the first warning that he had that you're turning away from God. I am sure that there were other prophets that came to him and told him and told him and told him. And told him but the timing on this one was perfect. You know, Egypt's standing right outside your gates. God, This is all because God has sent them. And I think if we read other places, we'd have found other prophets that were telling him the same message. And when we think about it, when we finally face the judgment for what we've done, if we really sit down and think about it, we usually have had many, many words from God saying, turn, turn around, you know, uh, you're, you're headed for the cliff. Um, it just seems like when you read from Exodus and those places where God warns them, if you turn. Oh, that would be one. some of the warnings. Yeah, that's what he said. He turned from the law of the Lord. So that's part of it. Uh, That is a great part of it. He turned from the law that he knew. But I'm sure even at that, there would have been prophets coming in. There would have been other speakers coming in. Because how many times when we're starting to go down the wrong path, usually the first thing we do is give up reading the Bible. Because the Bible is telling us we're not doing the right thing. And then we hear you know, pastors and teachers or radio speakers telling us that we're going the wrong way. And then we'll have some friend or something to just give us a warning, you know, that I'm not saying they're prophets, but they, they mention, well, it seems like you're not doing the things you used to do and all of this. And how many times do we ignore it? What was that sign that I just ran through? What was that, you know, bridge out? Well, you know, who, who, gonna keep going. <laughs> you know, here's, a, here's the blockade. Run that blockade, you know, and, and drive right off the bridge. <laughs> But we tend to do that, and this is what's going on here. Except they turn around. But there's still the consequence. And this is the hard thing is, if we could just listen <laughs> to God more often, we would avoid so much of the consequences in our life. And it takes a long time. I'm getting better at it. I'm still not there yet, but I'm getting better at listening to God and not having to face all the consequences. But we see over and over in Scripture consequences for disobedience over and over again you see Saul he never even repented and he lost his kingdom David repented and even in David's case if you think about all that happened to David after the murder of Uriah and the adultery with Bathsheba he had a miserable time all because of the consequences of not being in the right place at the right time Because if you remember the story of Bathsheba, it starts out with in the spring at the time when the kings went out to war, David was in Jerusalem. He was where he wasn't supposed to be, and then he got tempted. He fell for that temptation and then did all the other things to try to hide it and then ran into a long, long line of trials because of the consequences for his disobedience. And actually, his real first disobedience wasn't you know, the adultery with Bathsheba was not being out at war like he was supposed to be. You know, and how often are our problems just that? We get in trouble for the big thing, but it was a lot of little things that led to the big thing that we just made compromises for. Compromise a little here, compromise a little here, compromise a little here. And before long, all those compromises add up to a really big problem and we want to be careful of little compromises and you know uh, in Ecclesiastes Solomon said beware the little foxes that cause the problems the little foxes get under the walls and eat up all the eat up all the grapes and, and everything and he says it's the little things that destroy and then then you start panicking because the little things are coming in and then you start getting more and more compromise and we need to be very careful of this, and we don't we don't get to see all the compromises that led to him turning from God. But you know, we know there had to be a series of compromises. And how many times do we think we're getting away on it on a little compromise because God doesn't immediately judge us for that little compromise? All right, um, it's the same thing uh, I've said many times, and it's not original to me. You know, for for all of us who overeat a lot, include myself included. You know, if when we ate a donut, you know, a donut and it immediately popped onto our, our, our hips or our belly, it wouldn't take us long to quit overeating. But that's not how fast it happens. And this is the way it happens with sin. The sins that we do over and over and over again add up and God judges for that. He doesn't make the judgment fall hard on us right from the beginning. He gives us a lot of grace, a lot of mercy But there is an end to his mercy and his grace when he says enough is enough and the judgment comes and the consequences come. And here he's going to make them the servant of Egypt. And I love the way he says this and it's kind of poetic in in verse 8 that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. Now what is being said here is I want them to know they used to serve me, and how easy it was to serve me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and now they're going to serve Egypt and have a difference of how much different it is. And when we face our consequences without turning to God, we'll see the same thing. Now, and I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there. God, it was so easy when, you were, when I was really following you, and now look at this. You know, look at what I'm going through. We're told that you, that the borrower is the servant of the lender. So if we don't trust God to meet our needs and we borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow, now all of a sudden most of our money goes to pay all the money we borrowed instead of being able to do things for God. And we're under a very hard taskmaster where we had a freedom under God. And we need to be careful how we do this because I use that one because it's easy to... <laughs> easy to draw the conclusion of but every place that we go when we don't follow after God and we have to face the consequences of each of those decisions and usually it's being burdened or shackled to something or somebody and having to pay restitution have to pay out whatever it might be instead of serving God and it amazes me that God will allow it to happen because it seems like he loses out in the long run Yeah, But he doesn't need anything. But when I have to be burdened in serving somebody else instead of serving God, he loses all the stuff that should have been coming to him from us. But he owns everything, so it's not really a loss. But from a human perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But he says, I am going to let you see how easy you had it under me compared to what it's going to be like living under the world. And you know, for us it's the same thing. How much freedom do we have when we're abiding under God and we're serving Him and then we get ourselves tangled up with some sin. Some activity that is sinful. And we, I'm going to say voluntarily, go back into shackles under sin. God has released them and we go back and say, okay, put those shackles on me, make make me your slave again. And we don't necessarily volunteer, but because of our actions we are, we're going out there saying, "I just want, I want you instead of God." And then we get there and going, "Oh, how awful this is." Egypt, when they were walking out, uh, excuse me, Israel after Exodus, kept going, "We want to go back to Egypt. It was so nice in Egypt. We had onions and, and gar- cucumbers and, and garlic. We had all this food. Yeah, we were slaves and had to work our work all the time, but you know, we had all these things. And they just would not recognize the peace and, and freedom that God had given them. All they had to do was go out and get manna. But manna did not satisfy them. And that manna didn't satisfy them, so God gave them quail. And the quail didn't satisfy them. They're going, we want to go back. We need to be very careful. They had the perfect food su- supply, and water, and all of the things that God could give them. And all they could do was think of what they didn't have from the world. You know, and that's what we had to be careful of. That we're not looking to the world and saying, oh, I miss the world so much. I, I remember when I used to go to those parties and we had all kinds of fun. Couldn't remember anything we did, but I had all kinds of fun and lots of friends, and here I am. No. <laughs> you left the world because it didn't satisfy, and yet we look back with these dreamy you know, ideas of what the world was all about. And how much better the world was for some strange reason. And we all do it in some level. And we see it all through the scriptures. The scriptures, all the guys did it. You know, everybody in the the scriptures tend to do it. We need to be careful. Keep our eyes focused on God and keep God centered. Because the flesh keeps trying to come up. This is why I like Galatians 2.20. For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live by the faith of God, you know we've got to be looking at him crucifying our flesh because our flesh wants the world even though it knows that the world does not satisfy our flesh wants the world and our spirit if we're not in the God's word and, and staying focused on God, is going to lose to the flesh because unfortunately, it's an unfair fight. We have the flesh, we have the lust of the eyes, the, lust of the, of the uh, lust of the eyes, the lust of the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh. You know, we have all kinds of things against us if the flesh isn't crucified. But we have, the good thing is, when we're focused on God, we have God's strength. But it takes humbling ourselves and being submitted to God. If we don't humble ourselves and submit to God, the flesh will win all, every time. Because we can only beat our flesh into submission so much before it says, I've had enough. And it doesn't want to be crucified. So we need to be looking at all of this. And then in verse 9, So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he took, he, he took away all and carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Shishak has taken away the entire wealth of Judah, everything in the temple, everything in the palace, and those beautiful shields that Solomon had made for 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 ceremony. You remember those shields that he made were eight and a half pounds and four you know four and three quarters pounds each, and there were hundreds of them. They were the decorative armor of the royal guard. All of beautiful gold. And Shishak takes away all of those shields as well. And then, you know, Rehoboam, he didn't seem to be phased by this at all. He goes out and he makes brass shields to replace them. Now, brass looks really good when it's polished and everything and, and taken good care of, but it tarnishes very fast. So he put a substitute in the place of the shields that Solomon had. And he put a cheap substitute (laughs) in place of the shields that Solomon had made. And he put them in the guardhouse, and he took them out only for very special occasions, which it doesn't sound like Solomon did. It sounds like Solomon had those shields. Anytime the royal guard was out, outside of battle, they were carrying these shields. These ones were tucked away in in the chambers until, until Rehoboam went out to worship. And then they were taken out and put back really quick. Why? I think part of it was he didn't want people to see the cheap substitute. Because when they first saw the brass, you know, and probably shined up, they, they took the brasso to it really well and shined it up, it probably looked like gold from a distance, you know, when they first bring it, you know, bring it out, and then they would hide it real quick so that nobody, nobody saw the substitute. How many times in our life do we substitute God's work for our our fleshly work? This is a picture of what's going on there. The gold, the beauty, the deity, the, the purity of the gold substituted with brass. And this is kind of an interesting statement because gold represents deity, brass represents judgment. So they come in and they take out all this beautiful thing showing God's way of doing things and they bring out something that is full of the world's judgment. And we need to be so careful in our own lives that we don't substitute our own works for God's. What's gold? Huh? Gold Gold is deity. What? Deity. God. (laughs) Oh. Uh, and brass represents judgment. And so they're bringing and replacing it. And if we're not careful, we do the same thing. I have seen people, I have seen churches put together really good pro- programs that God has given them. And then the program, which started out godly and, and of God, all pure gold, and then it becomes, this is how we do things. And God is no longer in it, and all of a sudden it becomes Brass. And God saying, "Hold it, I'm no longer doing this program. I'm over here doing this program. Well, we like this program, got it. It's worked. It's not working anymore. Well, God, it, it worked in the past. It'll work again. And we substitute a cheap copy of what is real. This is what Ray Bones done. He's taken a cheap copy. Well, brass shields of eight and a half pounds aren't necessarily cheap, but compared to gold, <laughs> they're, they're cheap. So he's taken a cheap substitute. Looks good. Looks great. It's actually more durable if they had to fight with it. But it's still a substitute for what was the legitimate real item. And he is bringing this out and keeping this. But again, it said in verse 12, And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him, that he would not destroy him, and also... In Judah, things went well. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement, that things went now talking about Judah. Judah. At this point, we're switching Israel and, and Judah interchangeably, even though the southern kingdom technically is Judah. But they're also Israel. All right, It gets complicated, so let's try to explain this a little bit. Technically, the southern kingdom is called Judah. But all through the scriptures, they also refer to the southern kingdom as Israel, in spite of the fact that Israel is the northern kingdom. Because technically, God still says you're Israel, you're Israel's children, and so they flip back and forth all the time. And it gets—you have to read the context most of the time to even know who he's talking about. And I can get confused just like everybody else, and it's—it is tough when he bounces back. So. Uh, when we're talking, and this is going to be one thing that's true, in the book of Second Chronicles, we only end up talking about the kings of Judah. The other ones we'll mention once in a while, but only when they interact with, with this. When you're in the book of Kings and Second Kings, you go back and forth between the two tribes, and they stay pretty pretty true. If it's Israel, it's the northern kingdom. If it's Judah, it's the southern kingdom. In Second Chronicles... They mixed the two terms up a lot uh, because they still thought of themselves as Israelites, even though they were the tribe, you know, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and, and they were nation of Judah, they still thought of themselves as Israelites because that's who they were, the children of Israel. And so we see this bouncing back and forth. Okay, but then it says, and also in Judah, things went well. Now, I kind of find this. Very strange. They humble themselves. They're in subjection to Egypt. And yet because they're now seeking after God, things are well. Would they have been as well, would things have been better if they had not fallen away in the first place? Probably. But because they had humbled themselves, there's a blessing that comes even in the middle of the consequence for being for humbling ourselves before God. And I've seen this over over and over even in my life. When I finally surrender to God, God steps in and things go well and he blesses. And we don't know for sure what it would be would things have been better without the Without the fall, I'm sure they would have because then I wouldn't have had the consequences. But it is still good when God's in the center of it and peace that passes understanding and and you see God in control and you're going, okay, God, it is good. And this is the thing that we always want to remember. God has always got a good plan for us. We may not see it as a good plan when we're in the middle of it, We may not even think that it's a good plan, (laughs) but God has a good plan. Even when we're living in the consequences, God has a good plan for us. And we need to just open our eyes to say, God, I'm ready to see whatever the good is in this plan. Now, I will agree it's very hard to see the good in the middle of those things. (laughs) There's times when I've Gone to God and go, God, I do not understand what is going good here, but you say, you say you've got a good plan. You say that all things work together for good. You say you've got a plan. I am going to trust in your plan. My eyes are focused on him, and then eventually he shows me the good plan, or at least a portion of the good plan. I don't even think we ever see the whole good plan until we get to heaven. And God says, this is what I was going to do, do what I was doing for you. And we, there's an old poem out that talks about seeing the, the wrong side of the tapestry. You know, we're living on the wrong side of the tapestry. God is sewing together this beautiful tapestry of life. We're looking at the bottom of it with all the knots and, and strings that go all kinds of different directions. And if you've ever looked at the backside of a tapestry or an embroidery, they look ugly. <laughs> you know, how can all these knots and this string hanging here and this one going from here to here... You know, and this doing that, how can this make, then you flip it over. <laughs> and if the person really knows what they're doing, you're going, whoa. <laughs> I think when we get to heaven and we look at that, the, the other side of it, we're going to go, wow, God, you really, you really knew what you were doing when you put that knot in my life and you stretched me over to that part. And this person stretched over here and look what, look at the beautiful picture that you had made. And that's what we need to be focusing on. Not what we think we see, but what will God show us when it is complete. What will we see when the, when the project is complete? God is doing good things for us. Yeah, doing good things for us. All right, verse, verse 13. So King Rehoboam strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned, For Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name in. And his mother's name was Nahamah the Ammonitess, and he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Now, the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah the prophet and Edo the seer concerning the genealogies? And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abijah, his son, reigned in his stead. So here we see Rehoboam strengthens the kingdom. He is subject to Egypt. And what that means is he's paying tribute and taxes to Egypt every year for the for 12 years, he reigned for 17 years. He, verse 5, he was free. For 12 years, he's paying taxes to, or tribute or taxes to Egypt, as well as collecting taxes that he needs to run his own kingdom. So he is having a hard time in many things, but he is strengthening himself. And it says that, it gives us his mother and, it, and he reigned. And then it says in verse 14, He did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. So even after he had humbled himself, he did not make ready, arrange, order his life to follow God. It was a temporary reprieve. And he obviously humbled himself purposely before God because God recognized it. But he didn't totally give his heart to God to follow after God. And this is so important, taking back to the the God-centered life for a self-centered life. A self-centered life sees, I'm in trouble, God. I'm going to do everything I can to get you to listen to me. And I'm going to repent for a short period of time. But as soon as everything's gone and you've helped me, I'm going to go back to my own ways. I'm going to follow you for a short period of time. And then I'm going to go back to my own ways because I haven't prepared my heart to follow you. We need to prepare our hearts to follow after him. And stay focused on him. How do we do that? Well, we spend time in the word. We spend time being taught. We spend time getting godly counsel. And this is the the most interesting thing is getting godly counsel. When we're going to make a decision, do we seek out people that are going to tell us what God wants us to do or what we want to hear? Unfortunately, most of us go out to get counsel for what I, what I want to hear. What do you think I should do in this situation? Well, I think the Bible, tell you Bible. I'll see you later. <laughs> I didn't want to hear what God says. I want, you know, I want to hear what I want to hear. And we need to be very careful about that. Are we ready to hear from God? You know, and this can be in all kinds of places. And again, one of the places where it happens a lot, you're having trouble with your spouse and you go get counsel and, they, and get worldly counsel. Well, you know God wants you to be happy, so if you're not happy with your spouse, you should get rid of him. You know, and my answer to that person would be, what Bible verse are you using, number one, to even say that God wants me to be happy? And then give me what verse it's going to be that God says, get rid of my spouse. You know, are we looking to what God says? Or are we trying to hear things that tickle the ears? And we're told in the latter days people would have itching ears. They will seek after teachers to tickle their ears. To tell them what they want to hear. We need to be very careful that we're not seeking what we want to hear. Because we can find teachers. There's all kinds of teachers on the radio and on TV that will tell us how how good we are and how God wants us to be blessed and and all these things that are out there. But how much of the scriptures are we getting from those teachers? Are we hearing what God is saying? Are we hearing that there is sin, there's consequence to sin? Our world does not want to admit that there's sin. Oh, believe me, I know, because I talk to a lot of them. They don't want to admit that there's something, that there is a sin. And they're not prepared to follow God. We do not want to be one of those people that are not prepared to follow God. Are we ready to take God at His word? And then it says, "Now the acts of Rehoboam, the first and the last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah, the prophet, and Edo the seer?" We don't have—we don't know what those books are. We don't have them. They're not in the Bible. It's just saying that his acts were recorded. And when they were recorded, obviously somebody knew how to get to those books. Uh, but we don't have them, as far as I know. I've never heard anybody talk about those books. And we have lots of places in here where it talks about different books that we don't have access to. And we can think about it, how many books do we not have access to today that might have been very popular a while back ago because they just weren't, they didn't stay popular. And they kind of fell by the wayside. Now, we have classics that hold, hold the time and we know about. But maybe you're into mystery stories how many of those mystery stories you know are going to be around 20 years from now 30 years from now people are going to go well, don't care about that one now they're, again there's a handful of them that have pushed over over into the classics uh, romance novels and stuff you know people read these romance novels that have nothing and nobody will remember them down the road these are those type of books thousands of years later nobody has you know, uh, and besides which, they were history books. They were the journals. <laughs> uh, and nobody was interested in reading the journals. You know, uh, we, aren't, we aren't usually interested in reading our own journals <laughs> for those who keep journals. We just write out what we're, what we're thinking, and we're not really interested in reading our own journals. Uh, and if you remember the story in Esther that Xerxes, he wanted to fall asleep, so what did he do? He said, go get the Chronicles and read to me, so I'll, fall, I'll be so bored I'll fall asleep. You know, read, read me a Chronicles of what, what, what I've been doing so I can fall asleep, and that gives us an opinion of what these guys were writing down. They were writing, they weren't writing classics. They were writing the books that they figured that if anybody was to sit down and read, they'd be struggling to stay awake. You know, uh, got up in the morning, you know, uh, we had this for breakfast, went to court, this, this case, this case, this case was decided, uh, went to this meeting, this, you know, this is what they're talking about. Uh, nobody wants to read those books. Outside historians, if they can get their hands on them, uh, and these are what he's talking about. so when we say that they're lost, it's not a great loss to us. all right there wasn't anything great in them. they were just the listing of all the stuff going on that was in, and they were important to them. I mean this is the history of the court cases. this was the history of of what was you know what was going on in the in the royal royal uh, palace and everything so they they had their place, but they weren't They weren't destined to be classics and remembered. And then it says that, interestingly enough, there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. This is going to happen throughout the history of the two nations. They are going to be at war continually. Because both of them want to be reunited, even though they've had this civil war and splitting between them, they really realized that I've got brothers to the north and uncles and and all that, and I've got brothers and uncles to the south, and they wanted to be reunited, but they wanted to be reunited under their own rules instead of God's rules. So there would be constant war between these two two nations for the entire history of Israel, the the northern kingdom. And until they were taken, there's going to be battles between these these two countries. As they go through. And it's going to take up a lot of the wealth of the nation. is going to go into these battles trying to fight each other. Instead of listening to God and just being kind to one another. And then it says, Rehoboam died. And was buried in the city of David in Jerusalem. And his son Abijah reigned in his stead. That's the son that he wanted to reign. So his out of his... Out of all of these kids that he has, you know, the 88 kids that he has, um, he had 28 boys, and the one that he wanted out of the 28 boys is the one that's going to rain. So he, and I don't think he was the oldest one by the sound of it, but this is the one that he wanted, and he's going to take over the rain, and we will talk about him next week. <laughs> so, Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Lord, help us to stay centered on you and all that we do and focused on you to to help us to seek you in all that we do and to not be sidetracked and we thank you in jesus name amen listening friends where will you be when you die we ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes and the biggest answer we'll get is i hope i will be in heaven if hope is your answer you don't know god and that's is a problem We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at